God, thank you that you are an amazing God, that, Lord, you uh, made a way that we might come into the presence of your holiness through your Son, Jesus. And as we read of those prophecies given some 740 years before Christ came to this earth, Lord, what a majestic God you are in control. You see the beginning from the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, you know all things. We're better to place our trust. We're, we're better to put our hope, Lord, but in you. So I pray, Lord, that um, those, those days that we need your chastisement and your discipline as Judah did in the book of Isaiah, that we would gladly receive it and repent quickly and not be hard-hearted like Judah was. <laughs> and uh, Lord, that we would uh, recognize you don't discipline us because you hate us. You love us, and so you correct us. So we thank you for that love. Father, bless this time in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is kind of a grind to read through some of the chapters of Isaiah in that it is God pronouncing over and over again his judgment upon the land of Judah. There their mouths and their actions didn't line up, and that was the issue God had. Hey, you're coming to church, you're living the life, you look like a Christian on the outside, you smell like a Christian, but you aren't a Christian because I can see your heart and it's far from me. That's kind of the mentality uh, he has against the land of Judah. And um, they were, he was uh, nauseated by their sacrifices because they meant nothing to those that were doing the sacrifices. And so he throughout the early part of the book, says, I'm going to judge them. He gives Isaiah the vision for the judgment. But the thing that we cling to, the thing that we hold on to continually throughout the book of Isaiah is the idea that there is always hope. There is always an option. There is always a chance to return to God. We'll read it today in chapter 10. There's a remnant. There are those that God saved and God protected so uh, we need to recognize this isn't just the anger of God coming against the nation of Judah because he felt like it, like we prayed. He loved Judah and wanted them in right relationship with him. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And if you go back to the end of chapter 8, you're going to read about a whole bunch of gloom that was happening, all kinds of things that were going on. But he says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. This judgment will bring distressing times. He says, as when, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily opposed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So this is an interesting prophecy, believe it or not. He's pronouncing judgment, and he says, but in the midst of this judgment, and in the midst of the gloom, in the midst of the distress, a light is going to shine. But what's interesting is he says, in the land of Galilee, of the Gentiles there in verse 1. Galilee was to the north, and 
And Galilee was the region that was ravished by the Assyrian invasion. They completely upended, completely and utterly destroyed. They were war-torn. They were beat down. They were filled with gloom, the, the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. But because of God's promise that we read here, they're going to be the first to see the great light. Interesting. We read in Matthew chapter 4, it says in verse 13, speaking of Jesus, the great light, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, quote, and here's our text, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So we see in Jesus this prophecy being fulfilled. You would think the Messiah, the one who came to save the Israelites, to save Judah, you would think his home base would be where? Jerusalem, right? That would make sense that the king of kings, the one that was coming to save all of, of, of Israel by being their Messiah, you'd think they'd, he'd set up shop in the city of David. The, the Zion, if you would. But that's not what he does. While he did perform some miracles in Jerusalem, while he did do some ministry, and he was certainly faithful, a faithful Jewish man to visit Jerusalem three, at least three times a year on the festivals, that wasn't where the majority of his ministry occurred. The, most of his work, most of the th- miracles that he did w- occurred in Galilee. That's where he set up his shop. Why? So that even the remotest of prophecies would be fulfilled. There wasn't one that he missed. You guys have heard the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies, right? It would be like in the, the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies given in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah would be like filling the state of Texas with a with silver dollars to knee height, and then throwing in one that you marked an X with somewhere into the state of Texas. And it would be the same probability that you would grab that same silver dollar out of the state of Texas, knee deep filled with silver dollars, that one man would fulfill just eight of the prophecies for the Messiah. And Jesus filled 230 some odd, including that he was the light was shining in the land of Galilee. Those who walk in dark dark nights have a greater understanding of His presence. And Galilee certainly had because of the Assyrian invasion. And they are the first to see that great light. In verse 3 it says, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. Speaking of the Messiah, they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of the fire. Isaiah says of the Messiah that's to come, he comes to bring joy, he comes to bring peace and hope, and and people will rejoice in his coming, so much so it will be like a 
a, a, a battle victory. They, they'll celebrate in the, uh, in, as, as though they were dividing the spoil. They would um, celebrate as, as though it were a day of harvest. When you, after you've waited all the growing season to bring in the potatoes or whatever it is, right? It's when you, when you put, put the harvest on the, on the kitchen table and your family looks at the hard work that you've put in. You, you celebrate that moment. You, you're grateful for that moment. That's what, that, that joy that would rise up is, is like that. In John chapter 15, verse 11 of Jesus, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy, Jesus' joy, may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus came, that we might have this type of joy spoken of in Isaiah. It's in the finished work of the Messiah that we have victory over our greatest foe. Who is, who is who's my greatest foe? Who's your greatest foe? Death. Ain't nobody can stop it. It's coming. You know the statistic, I've said this many times, one out of every one of us is going to die. So, as a result of sin, we learn in Romans, we have death. But He defeated death, that we might find joy in Him. The yoke is broken. God won the victory. It says, as it was in Midian. The Midian, the, uh, Gideon conquered the Midianites. And how did Gideon conquer the Midianites? With this huge and massive army? No, God kept reducing the army and reducing the army and sending people home. Anybody that was scared, anybody that drank water a certain way, till there was just some 300 guys left so that when the victory was won against the Midianites, everybody would know it wasn't the men that won the victory. It was God. And that's the way victory and joy comes to us. It's not that we have won the victory over death. It's that Christ has won it on our behalf. And that victory is complete, as it says there at the end. The soldier's sandals, the clothing, they're no longer going to be needed. The battle, it will be over. The victory has been won. And so the clothing becomes fuel for the fire. And in His victory, we have joy. And in Him defeating sin and death, we find hope. We find life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As, as Christ reigns, we too reign with Him, and we find joy in that. Romans 8.37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Because we are His bride, He brings us alongside. As He reigns on high, we too will reign with Him. Now we get to a probably one, if you've read through Isaiah before, you probably have this verse highlighted. This is a a great prophetic verse, and, and in fact, the, the next two are, but probably one that you've heard usually around December, you start hearing this quite a bit. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I can't read that without hearing Handel's Messiah. Uh, it's it just, it, it, for years, we would go to the King Avenue United Methodist Church around Christmas time to see the choir and the Columbus Symphony perform part, pieces and parts from the Handel's Messiah. It wasn't the entire thing. It was too long for that. But one of the, you know, the more, most famous song from that, piece, or from that, the, that work is the uh, Hallelujah Chorus. But probably the second most famous is, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And there's this great arpeggiating violin part that's just beautiful. It bounces up and down, is all over the place. 
And I can't read that without thinking of Handel's Messiah. It is truly beautiful. But Isaiah didn't write a repetitive statement just for the sake of repetition. He wasn't just trying to fill the scroll. You guys did that in second grade as you were writing a report, right? I did it in my science, seventh grade science. I did a, a science report on the disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Why? Because it took a whole line to write that every time. <laughs> and most people would abbreviate it as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, but not me. No, in seventh grade, I wrote it out every time. And I remember it to this day, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I asked my mom, what's the longest named disease name in the Bible? Or in the, in the, she's a nurse, and so she's like, hey, do this one. So it was an interesting study. That's not what Isaiah is doing here by being repetitive. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is giving. He's giving emphasis, but he's also presenting two perspectives. For unto us a child is born, the Messiah comes. That's the view from earth. That's our view of Messiah coming. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given is the same event from heaven's perspective. It's God giving of His Son to be our Messiah. Unto us a child is born, our perspective. Unto us a son is giving from the perspective of heaven. In the birth of the Messiah, the saving one, we have what's known as the incarnation. That's God becoming man. Jesus, or God coming to earth. Um, it's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, put on, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, he put on the limitations of man. He emptied himself and he, put, he took on the limitations of the flesh. That in him, we might have a high priest, a royal high priest, whom we can, who can sympathize with us. He's experienced the things that we've experienced. He's been tempted in the way that you and I have been tempted, yet was without sin. We have a high priest who knows what we walk through because he is fully man. But he is also fully God. He remained fully God that his sacrifice when he went to the cross might be found worthy in the eyes of a holy God. It is Jesus is a unique being in all of the earth. He is both fully God and fully man. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The next phrase, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He, he will be the one who rules and reigns. At, at Jesus, as he ascended after he raised from the dead, he sat down, it tells us, at the right hand of the Father. That is the place of rule. From there, he rules and he reigns. He, he became king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Now, God is long-suffering in that he's allowing this earth to continue to spin. He's allowing man to continue to choose whether or not they're going, he's going to follow him. God's long-suffering in that he's still allowing man to make the decision who will rule his heart. It's God's desire that all men would come to repentance. He's seeking and saving the lost, yet he allows man to make the choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. But in the millennial kingdom, 
when Christ will reign and the government will truly be upon his shoulders, this prophecy will be completely fulfilled. And we saw that as we read chapter 2, when they're going to beat the swords into plowshares, when they're going to get rid of the defense budgets of all the nations. It's because Christ will be reigning and ruling. The government will be upon his shoulder. And his name... His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I I hear Handel (laughs) as I say that. If you don't know it, check it out. It's it's beautiful, beautiful piece. But His name, Jesus' name, Wonderful, and truly He is wonderful. Amen? We stand in full wonder of His love for us. He is the God of wonders. There is none like Him. I I am amazed that He would put up with a man like me. I'm I'm overwhelmed with the love that He has for us. It is truly wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. Why? Because God is (laughs) all-knowing. I don't know of a better counselor than that. Somebody who would know all things? Yeah, I'll I'll put my trust in him. I'll listen to what he has to say. I'll take his counsel. His counsel is true because he is all-knowing. His name will be called Mighty God. Why? He's not only all-knowing, he's also all-powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do. There is no task that is too hard for him. He spoke the world into existence. He truly has power and might. His name will be called the Everlasting Father. That's interesting. It's speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to rule and reign, and He will be called the Everlasting Father. And we know that in the triune God, the Father and the Son are distinct, but yet one. And so it's easy to understand that this is speaking of the triune God, that He is three in one, the Everlasting Father and His reign will be forever. And His name will be called the Prince of Peace. The sacrifice that Jesus brings, brings us to peace with God. How glorious His name. In verse 7, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with the judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform this. How long will he reign? Forever. Forever. It's God's zeal. It's his passion. It's his love that that will perform this. It's God's love that sends his son, a child, and allows him to become the suffering servant to bring us peace. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his death. Yet, His story doesn't end there, for He defeated death. That, at the name, at His name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess His Lordship. And He shall reign forever and ever. We get into an interesting section now uh, from verse 8 all the way through chapter 10, verse 4. It's broken into four parts, and each part concludes with the phrase, for all this, his anger is not turned away, 
but his hand is stretched out still. Some call this section the speech of the outstretched hand. And so we're going to look at each section now, picking it up in verse 8. We're still speaking now uh, of, of his judgment that is coming against the land. It says in verse 8, The Lord sent a word against Jacob and has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who, pay, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. The first thing Isaiah is saying is he is, God is coming against the land of Judah, and specifically it's going to fall on Israel, Ephraim to the north, the inhabitants of Samaria, because of pride. Because of pride, the Lord is going to chasten them. Remember, and I remind us again, judgment comes because God loves them. He cares for them, and, and He doesn't want them to be out of His will. Listen to this. God loves us too much to let us succeed in sin. He will chasten us. He will hearken. He will woo us back to Him when we have gone wayward. He loves us too much to let us succeed in sin. And so He's going to stand against that. Discipline comes because of love. I read a great blog by... Um, Oh, shoot. Michelle, what's the... We Are That Family. Yes, thank you. That's the name of the blog. We Are That Family. But she was saying that it's just the idea that proper parenting is tough. It's hard to be a good parent. It's hard to do the right thing. It should, we should fall into our beds at the end of every night because we're exhausted, because we've been working on loving our kids in that way. It's because, what was the line? It's because we love feverishly that we chase after them diligently. That we discipline them in love. And that's the same for God and us. Pride is one of their sins. Rather than humility and accepting the Lord's discipline and humbling themselves before that, they respond in pride. Verse 9 and 10, we will rebuild in better ways. Yeah, the things are knocked down, but we're going to build it up. And I know that Joseph Kahn has taken these verses and wrote a book called The Harbinger and tried to twist them into a warning against America as well. I think what Joseph Kahn figured out is a way to make a lot of money. This is speaking to the land of Israel, the apple of God's eye. Verse 13, For the people do not turn to Him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. See, they aren't turning back. The purpose, that's the purpose of discipline, is to turn their hearts back to God. Yet they will not. Arrogance. Our second section here, verse 14, Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush. He's saying the same thing in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. 
For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. So not only because of their pride, but because of the misleading of both the political, right? The elder, that's who he's referring to, the one that he calls here the head. Both the misleading of the political and of the priesthood, uh, the prophet or the tail, the one who gives lies. God is going to discipline them and, and the discipline of God will come against them. They, verse 16 tells us, will be destroyed. The head and the tail will be cut off. Why? Because those who lead fall under a stricter judgment. And it's right, if you lead somebody astray, that you, you have a millstone tied to your neck and you be thrown into the depth of the sea. That's proper if you were to lead somebody astray. There is a stricter judgment for those who lead. And it's not a remnant from the leadership. It's the remnant from those that were being led. And so he's going to cut off the head and the tail. Verse 18 our third set. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother and he shall snatch on the right hand and, on, and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Mm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. There's our phrase again. So not only is God coming against them because of pride and because of poor leadership, but he recognizes the hearts of the people as well. And, and the judgment of God, if it's successful, it will humble a person. And that person will align himself under the, the right wisdom and the right judgment of God. Humble people carry no animosity toward one another. When we are truly humble, we have a, a, an understanding, a respect, a love for our brothers and sisters. Here, we see that even the pride of the people they're going to turn, during the judgment of God, they're going to turn toward one another. They're going to devour one another. Manasseh against Ephraim. Ephraim against Manasseh. They're going to destroy themselves. They're going to turn with the purpose of destruction. But even with all that's coming against the nation of Israel, not enough to turn their hearts. It's sad. So the Lord continues. His hand is outstretched still, is the phrase. So verse 1 of chapter 10, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of the justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment, and in the desolation which comes from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Our fourth paragraph. God is coming against them because of their pride. God is coming against them because they have poor leadership leading them astray. God is coming against them because... 
Even if they had good leadership, they would still want to devour one another. And here, God is coming against them because God cares greatly for the poor and the needy, the orphan and the widow. He forever upholds their call. And when they, the poor, are afflicted at the hand of the leaders, God rescues them. God comes to their defense. And when God stands against you, where are you going to go? That's the question he asks. Who can you turn to in that hour when God has made a decision to stand against you? Notice it says there in verse 4, Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners. All God has to do is remove his hand of protection. Without me, he's like, if I just step off the scene, which is really what they want anyway, if I remove my hand of protection from them, they're going to bow down. They're going to fall down. They're going to succumb to what is coming against them. They have no hope without me. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. It says in the book of Hebrews that he holds us together. If God were to remove his hand from your life, you'd split apart. Like an atomic bomb going off. He literally holds our physical frame together. The God glue, as the scientists call it, they don't know what else to call it. All God has to do is remove his protective hand. So we see this phrase four times, and the repetition of the phrase reminds us that God's judgment is persistent. It moves from phase to phase until it finds repentance. This means that it makes sense for us to repent now. If the Lord's hand is upon you, if he's trying to woo you back and, and discipline you, the, the, the proper response is repent now because he's not going to give up. His love's too great for that. God's judgment is persistent for all of eternity. Grogan, the um, commentator, even if physical death does not satisfy the fierce anger of this holy God, what dread and punishment lies beyond the grave? Even death will not stop the, 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 the chastisement of God. Now God turns his attention to his discipline of the instrument. Or I'm sorry, his discipline instrument. God is going to use the nation of Assyria to, to level this discipline against the nation of Israel. And so now he's going to turn his attention to the nation of Assyria, his discipline instrument, the thing he's spanking Israel with. So it says in verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. See, they're the, they are the instrument. I will send him against an ungodly nation, and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. Speaking of Assyria, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. The first thing we see, God likens the nation of Israel to the rod and the staff. Hmm. Instruments of a good shepherd. God, the, the, the shepherd out in the field would carry a rod and a staff in order to discipline the sheep, to corral them, to keep them under control, even to the point of breaking their legs at time, a sheep's leg, in order to, to correct him of a, an issue. The instruments of a shepherd, that's what he likens Assyria to. And God is going to use the Assyrians to discipline Israel but that does not excuse the Assyrians from the sin of attacking Israel. <laughs> what? 
the Assyrians chose to attack Israel. They thought they were doing it in and of themselves, and their hope was to, to plunder Israel, to come against Judah, and not just to stop there, but to defeat any, many nations. They're just, they want to be a growing empire, and they'll step on anybody to do that. So they're thinking it's their idea. Little do they know they are an instrument in God's hand to come against Israel. So just because they were an instrument in God's hand, that doesn't excuse them from the sin of coming against Israel. And that's what God is saying. He's, gonna, he's going to spank them as well. The Assyrians didn't recognize the, the hand of God. They were just after the spoils of war. Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. God can use the wickedness and calamity of man to further his will without ever approving of the wickedness or carnality. In fact, God is totally justified in judging the very wickedness and carnality that he uses to accomplish his will. The pattern is repeated over and over throughout Scripture. Joseph's brothers against Joseph. God used it for his purpose and disciplined Joseph's brothers. Saul sinned against David, but God used it for his purpose and judged Saul. Judas sins against Jesus, but God uses it for his purpose and judges Judas. And that should help you and I a little bit with trouble, uh, a question that might trouble us. A couple questions. How can God bring any good through this evil that was done to me? We can't often know in advance exactly how God will bring the good. But we can trust that he will continue he will as he continues to as we continue to yield to him and to seek him. Another question that might arise, doesn't God care about what they did to me? He does care, and he will bring it to justice. He will correct according to his perfect will and his perfect timing. Trust in the Lord. It says in verse 8. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? This is Assyria now speaking. He says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not, I think verse 9 will help us all, okay? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Doesn't that just open it up for you? Right? Everybody's got it now, right? That was a, a location joke, right? You had to be there to understand that one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the idea is, he, in verse 8, it says, are not my princes altogether kings? Assyria is like, even my princes are better than your kings. This, this is arrogance coming out of Assyria. Verse 10, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria. As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Assyrian, I've already conquered Samaria. I'm going to do the same to Jerusalem. There's nothing you can do to come against me. This is the arrogance of Assyria speaking. Verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord had performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, God now speaking, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I've removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand is found like, 
has found like a nest the riches of the people. As one gathers eggs that are left, I've gathered all the earth. There was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. So this is the arrogance of the people of Assyria and God saying, I'll take care of that. I got that covered. When I'm done using them as an instrument, I will judge them. They boast in their own strength. They never recognize the hand of God. What they don't realize is when God is done disciplining Judah, he's going to punish Assyria for what they had done. And he does that. They aren't an empire for much longer. If you look at the history books, God simply uses them, and then they kind of fall off the face of the earth. Shall the axe, verse 5, boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or a staff, if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who controls the angel armies, Therefore the Lord of hosts will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away." Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. I love this, this thought. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? The Lord uses the picture of an axe, a saw, a rod, a staff to make up the point that an instrument should never take credit for what the worker does with the instrument, right? The surgeon doesn't come out after taking out your gallbladder and say, hey, we got it. We, we did good. You're going to be fine. You're going to recover. And you say thank you to the doctor. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. You need to thank the scalpel. Here, I brought the, I brought the scalpel with me. You know, he, he needs to take a bow here. You don't praise the instrument. You praise the one who is wielding the instrument. The strength and the skill are in the user, not in the instrument. A hammer is of no value unless somebody picks it up. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. For he shall strike you with the rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, as his rod was on the sea, so he will lift it up in the manner of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder as his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. 
God's heart in all of this is a heart of love. And we need to hear that. This is not just the hand of God coming against the nation of Israel. Anytime in the book of Isaiah that judgment is pronounced, there is the promise of the remnant that is provided. Every time God speaks of judgment, hey, it's okay. Yes, the Assyrian is going to come against you. Yes, the rod is coming down, but I will save a remnant. Though you are as many as the sand of the seashore, and when they're taken off into captivity, that is the case. Millions and millions of them. But as we read through Isaiah or through Ezra and through Nehemiah, just a small number returns, some 50,000. God's judgment is exact. He's not going to allow it to compromise the promises He's already made. And so that's why it is exact. That's why there will be a remnant. It's not that just Assyria is just going to completely wipe them out. God is using them as a fine instrument in His hand to exact a specific judgment. Messiah still has to come. God can't wipe out the entire nation of Israel because David's bloodline needs to remain intact for another 740 years. So there will be a remnant. This is interesting. And, and, and these cities that we're going to read in the next few verses aren't going to mean a whole lot to us, but check out what God does as he writes this. Remember, this is before the Assyrian army had come in and conquered that he writes these words. It says in verse 28, He, speaking of Assyria, has come to uh, Aif. He has passed Migron. At Michmash, he has attended to his equipment. They have gone along the ridge. They have taken up lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth. Uh, Madmena has fled, and the inhabitants of Gebam seek refuge. As he will remain at Nob that day, he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Remember, written before Assyria took one step into the nation of Israel. The listing of the cities flows from north to south, describing the exact course of the Assyrian invasion. This is exactly how the Assyrians came into the land. Nob, as it says in verse 32, he will remain at Nob that day. Nob is right outside the city of Jerusalem. And that's as far as the Assyrian army came. That's as far, they were stopped there. And the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night there in Nob. God's promise perfectly executed a fine instrument in His hand. And then finishing up the chapter, it says in 33, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Speaking that he is going to come against the, the, both the land of Judah, but also he's going to judge Assyria for what he had done. Both be, we see in these chapters, both because of their pride, God takes issue with them. And just a reminder from James chapter 4. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
At times in his love for us, he has to chastise us. He has to discipline us. He has to correct us. Because he wants us to walk humbly before him. Humility is having the proper perspective of ourselves and of God. It's recognizing that while we are weak, He is strong. He is all-powerful. The, the, the mighty God in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That while He is all-knowing, we know so little. We can't even tell what's going to happen tomorrow. He is the wonderful Counselor because He can see the beginning from the end. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. May we humble ourselves beneath that gift. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that an earthly father would discipline his son or daughter in order to correct them because they love their children. And how much more are you a good father? And you correct us when we've gone astray. You love us so much that you won't let us succeed in sin. Lord, you've made a way that when we fall short, that we might come into the presence of your your holiness. A son has been given. The government is upon his shoulders. He rules and he reigns. And we don't have to worry about what tomorrow may bring because You reign on high, Lord, and we are your people, the sheep of your field. We're in your pasture, Lord. We sit at your right hand along with God, with Jesus. We are the bride of Christ, redeemed and saved, not by our works, but by your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making a way. And I pray for anybody that today might be walking in uh, your discipline, Lord. And I pray that what they would do is Stop now. Stop walking away from you and repent. Humble themselves before you. Return unto you and and be welcomed back into your loving arms. That we would walk in humility, Lord. That we would be a people not seeking our own kingdoms. That we would join, as Jesus taught us to pray, by saying, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may it be so in our lives. And with our lives, may we honor you and glorify you. May we sell out for you, Lord. May we give you everything that we have, for you gave everything for us. We love you, Lord. Go with us as we leave this place. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.